Amen. Good morning again. It is just so good to see you and so grateful that there's people that are still tuning on uh, online. Thanks for doing that. Today we're starting a new sermon series that we're calling Questioning Christianity. Questioning Christianity. And in this series, we're going to look at some of the hard questions that we can have, the doubts even that we can carry with ourselves sometimes about the Christian faith. And we can all experience that in different ways. One of my historical heroes is a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he pastored a church in London in the mid-1900s, uh, and this is what he said. He said, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt their interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. We can all have doubts. And the burden of our pastoral team here at Christ Church is Pastor Steve and Pastor Matt and I were praying about what we wanted to see in this next sermon series. We just felt that it was an important time to look at the doubts and questions we can have about our faith because we're certainly living in times with this COVID craziness that raise questions that can bring doubts that may have been there for a while, can bring them in an even more heightened way to the surface. And so we want to just think about those things together. And we're also aware that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards our Christian faith. Pastors are having sermons subpoenaed for hate speech. Fines are being levied. More and more we are engaging in a culture that does not like what the Bible has to say about various things. And so if we are going to remain steadfast in our faith, then we need to be prepared for the questions that are sure to come our way. And so I'm excited to get into this series. Today we're not going to be looking at a specific question. Today what we're going to be looking at is really how do we just navigate in general the different doubts we can have. When we experience doubt, what do we do with that doubt? The late great preacher Billy Graham said, often doubts come from within our own hearts and minds. But in reality, it doesn't matter where our doubts come from. The important thing is what we do with them. The important thing is what we do with them. But I don't think we always know what to do with the doubts that we have. I think we can suppress them, we cannot think about them, we can push them off, but we need to understand how to handle doubts when they come our ways. And this morning, in the scripture verse that we heard read, we, we meet someone who's experiencing a moment of doubt. We meet a man named John. John is known as John the Baptist, not because he was part of that denomination, but because he baptized a lot of people. So a lot of people refer to him nowadays as John the Baptizer. That's what he did. John was a cousin of Jesus. But even more importantly, John says that he was the last great prophet who had been prophesied would come before the coming of the Messiah. And so in the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish sacred writings, there's this figure named the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. It's what the Greeks called the Christ. And this anointed one of God was going to come to establish God's kingdom. 
but before this Messiah, this Christ is to come, there was going to be a last prophet who would come, who would prepare the way, who would, who would declare that this king is going to come. It's kind of the herald, if you will. You'd have the heralds that would go out before the king saying, hey, he's coming, he's coming, to get people ready for his coming. And so that was John's job. That's what, that was his purpose in life, to be that herald, to be that forerunner, to be the one who came to proclaim the coming of the Christ, the one who was to come. And when Jesus first showed up to John, John's out preaching in the wilderness, and Jesus comes to where he is, this is how John identifies him. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John publicly identified Jesus as this Christ, as this Messiah, as this one who had come. That, that's how he starts this ministry. But now, in verse 3, he's asking the question, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? We have to understand, for John, this represents significant doubt. He's gone from publicly proclaiming that Jesus is the one to come, to now having questions about, is that really true? What has changed? Why is John experiencing this? Well, I think we're given a reason in verse 2. Notice the place that John is. It says, now when John heard in prison, John is in prison. And that is certainly not where he expected that he would be. That's not where you would expect that the herald of a king would be placed. John has gone to prison for, what, for calling out this corruption of this king, this earthly king, King Herod, John called him out for corruption. That king didn't like it, and so that king puts him in prison. But again, you have to remember, John thinks that he's the herald of the heavenly king. And so, of course, he's expecting Jesus to storm the castle and to free him. But that's not what's happening in his story. John is in prison, and Jesus is making no move to free him from prison. And so often, doubt is birthed when we have an expectation of God that does not meet our experience of God. Often doubt comes from not just intellectual quandaries, they come from a place of emotional hurt. We're going through something that we never expected God to allow to happen in our life. Or we're experiencing something, we wish we were experiencing something that God is not allowing to have happen. Doubt often comes from unmet expectations. And so when we talk about navigating doubt, we have to understand we're not just looking for intellectual answers. That's certainly part of it. But we can't just address the head. We have to understand doubts are often birthed from the heart. We can't just address the intellectual head questions. We have to address the emotional heart questions. And I think in this passage, Jesus does, he does both. He does both. And so here's what we're going to see as we make our way through this passage. We're going to see, what do we do with doubt? What can we do with it? Well, one, we need to be honest about our doubts. We need to be honest about our doubts. Two, we need to be humble with our doubts. We need to be honest about them, humble with them. And three, we need to be hopeful in them. We need to be honest, humble, and hopeful. Let's look at each of these things from this text. First, we need to be honest about our doubts. John 
does not keep his question to himself. He does not pretend that he is sure about something that he's not. No, he asks a question. He is honest about the doubt that he has in his mind and in his heart. He's honest about his doubts. And please notice, as he is honest, Jesus does not correct him. When he goes to Jesus and expresses his doubt about who Jesus is, Jesus does not say, what is wrong with you, O you of little faith? Jesus does not say, I expected more of you. Jesus does not say, you're a leader, you should have this figured out by now. No, what does Jesus do? Jesus engages him in his doubt. He gives evidence, which we'll look at in a minute, he gives evidence that he thinks will help John with the doubts that he has. Jesus is answering John's question, which is an affirmation of the question. See, Jesus is affirming John's honesty. And this is really the regular pattern that we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we regularly see that when questions are being asked, they're often answered with evidence given. Classic examples, look at Romans 1, or you can look at 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible regularly presents reasons for the faith. See, our culture defines faith as the believing despite evidence. Or it defines faith as believing with no evidence. You know, people say, oh, I, you know, I guess I just got to take that on faith, meaning there's no reason to accept it. I just have to kind of will myself to believe it. I think about the movie Santa Claus with Tim Allen, right, where he says, the elf tells him as he's struggling to, to see and to understand what's going on, she says, oh, seeing is not believing, believing is seeing. You just have to believe, and when you believe, without evidence, that's how you begin to see. But we need to understand, biblically, faith is not belief without proof. No, faith is trust without reservation. It's not belief without proof, it is trust without reservation. Faith is trust in the God who has given us evidence as to why He is worthy of our trust. Why He is worthy of our trust. And so it is never wrong for us to be honest about our doubts. In fact, it's very important that we are. Because doubts, if left unaddressed, doubts can become like slow-working acid that just eats away at our ability to experience faith. We have to understand, doubt is never neutral. It is always directional. It wants to take us somewhere. And if we leave it unattended, it will never take us to faith. It will take us away from faith. But when doubt is addressed, when we are honest about it, that can lead us to experiencing greater truth that we begin to discover about our faith, which can lead us to allow us to doubt towards faith. We can doubt away from faith, or we can doubt towards faith. Doubt is always directional. The difference is, are we going to be honest about the doubts that we had? If John hadn't been honest, he never would have gotten the answer that he did from Jesus. His honesty is what allowed him to experience greater evidence, which led to further understanding. Friends, if God is the God of truth, 
let's just be really clear. He's not threatened by our questions. If God's the God of truth, then any question that we have is only going to take us deeper into the truth of who he is. Listen, friend, God can handle your doubt. There's never been a question asked that has stumped God. Remember our series we just went through in Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. I hate to burst everyone's bubble, but you are never going to ask a question that has not been asked before by someone else in history. You're never going to ask a question that has not been asked and that God is not engaged in, in his word. God is not threatened by our doubts, and so we can be honest with them. John is honest about his doubt. And notice this too. He's not just honest with himself. He's honest with others. He gets his followers to go ask the question on his behalf. Now, he's kind of forced into that situation because he's in prison. He had no choice but to involve others. But he actually did have a choice, didn't he? He could have stayed silent. He could have not said anything. He could have been worried about other people's opinion of him. And, oh, here I am as their leader. And here I am expressing doubt. What are they going to think of me? But he's not worried about their opinion. He's willing to be open with others and honest with others. And notice the way that he gets greater evidence is through other people helping him to find it. John's not just honest with himself, and I think that's often what we can do with our doubts. We just stay with ourselves. We stay in our own minds. But John includes other people in the process because often God speaks to us through others. And so it's important that we're honest, not just with ourselves. If we're having doubt, it's important that we speak those doubts out loud with other people and invite them into the process. We need to be honest about our doubts, but not just honest about our doubts. Point number two, we need to be humble with our doubts. We need to be humble with our doubts. John is humble enough to realize there might be an answer that he's not thought of. He has doubts because his experience of life is not meeting up with his expectations of God, but he realizes that maybe my experience in life is not the sum of all things. Maybe I don't know everything. And so he is searching because he is humble. Because he is humble. He is humble enough to realize there might be answers out there. We have to understand, we live in this post-modern culture, there's no problem with asking questions. The first point I made about being honest about your doubts, our culture would applaud that. Yes, be honest. Ask questions. Search. People have no problem with that. They will, if you start doubting and asking questions, they will celebrate your authenticity. But they will start having problems if you arrive at truth. They will start having problems if you say there's an answer. We like questions in our culture, but we don't like answers. We like the journey, but we never want to get to a destination. We're suspicious of it. And I think this suspicion can really be captured in a, a parable. It's actually an ancient Hindu parable. Maybe you've heard it before. It's the parable of the blind men and the elephant. And so the reason that people are suspicious of answers, they say it's because we all only see a partial, a partial view of the truth. We only see a part of what's true. And so the, the story goes, there's this elephant, and you have four different blind men, and they're each feeling a different part of the elephant. And so one blind man grabs the tail and says, oh, the elephant is like a vine. The other blind man touches the side of the elephant and like, oh, no, the elephant is like a wall. The other blind man says, feels the leg and says, you're both wrong. The elephant's like a tree. 
finally the other person you know, touches the tusk and says, you guys are all wrong. It's, it's the spear. That's what an elephant is like. And the parable is meant to see, see, they're all blind. They're all just, they're all right, but they're all wrong. And so, you know, we should realize that there's other perspectives on truth, and we should never say that we have all the truth. Right? That, that's the moral of that story. And that sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds really humble. That sounds really inclusive. But we need to think about that a little bit deeper. The only way for someone to say that you're only seeing part of the truth is if that person is not blind and is seeing all the truth. The only way to say that each blind man is only partially right is if there's someone outside observing what they're doing and saying, I see all the truth, and I see that you're all only partly right. And so while they're saying that, hey, none of us can say the truth because we all only have a partial view of it, the only way to say we have a partial view of the truth is if you yourself think you have a full view of the truth. And so while it sounds humble, if I can be honest with you, it's actually very arrogant. You're saying you're superior to these other people. You're saying that, oh, they just think they know a little bit of the truth. I see it all, and I see that there is no one answer. The only way to say there is no one answer is if you yourselves are above everyone saying that you have the only answer. And so it's a self-refuting, superior, culturally narrow statement. The other thing that I often hear is people say, well, I'm not saying that we all have a partial view of the truth. Maybe there is a truth out there. I just don't, I just don't know what it is, and I'm not sure if we ever can know what, there, what it is. Right? I'm not saying there might not be something that's true. I'm saying I just don't know. And they, wanna, they don't want to be committing to any one place. They want to be non-committal. But again, we have to understand, the choice to be non-committal is a commitment. To say you don't want to choose is to make a choice. If you're driving on a highway and there's an exit coming up and someone is saying, hey, this exit will lead you home, you could say, I don't want to make a choice. I'm not sure if that's going to lead me home or not. But at some point, you're going to have to make a choice. Are you getting off exit or are you staying on the highway? If you say, I'm not going to make any choice, you'll run right into a median and that'll be your choice. Again, it, it might sound humble to say, hey, I just, I just don't know, and how could we ever know? It might sound humble, but actually, I think it's lacking in self-awareness. Maybe not consciously, but just think about it a little bit more. By saying you don't want to make a commitment, you are, in fact, making a choice. It takes humility to be like John. To be like John and just say, hey, I don't have all the information, and so I'm not going to say the information is not out there. I'm going to say, let me go try to find it. It takes humility to realize that doubt should never be the final word. No, doubt should be the motivation that takes us to go find the answers that our hearts are searching for. John is open to having his questions answered. He doesn't just stay with a question. No, he goes seeking an answer because he's humble enough to realize there might be truth out there. We need to be honest with our doubts. We need to be humble with our doubts. And then finally, we need to be hopeful. We need to be hopeful in our doubts. Jesus go, John goes to Jesus with his doubts, and Jesus gives him this really incredibly profound answer. 
That's what Jesus says in answer to him. Let me read it again. He says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And then he lists all these various miracles. And then he closes by saying, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Here's what's incredible about this answer. This answer is both verifiable and it's personal. Jesus gives an answer that is verifiable and an answer that is personal. It's verifiable in the sense that when John comes with his question, or his followers come in his stead, Jesus does not answer with a riddle. Jesus does not give a theological treatise. He does not give some kind of pithy saying. He does not give something that needs to be interpreted. No, he says, hey, just tell him what you see and what you hear. These are the physical acts that I am doing. He gives them something that can be verified. Say, hey, go see and check this out for yourselves. You can verify this yourselves. Right, someone asked me, hey, Jeff, are you strong? And if I said, hey, I am strong that I am strong. Right? That's something you would have to interpret. What on earth does just mean by that? But if I said, actually, I haven't been to a gym in a while, I'm not that strong, and, you know, I can probably only lift, I used to be able to lift about 275 pounds, I'm now lucky if I can get up probably about 150. Right? You could go verify that in the gym and see how much weight I could actually lift. Like, I'm not giving you something that needs to be interpreted, I'm giving you something that can be verified. Jesus answers with verification. And when you understand these, these things that he says he's doing, these are not just random things that Jesus is citing. No, these are all specific references to prophecies that were made hundreds of years before he came. Hundred years before Jesus came, there was a prophet named Isaiah who made these different predictions about what the Messiah, the Christ, would be able to do. This Christ would be able to give sight to the blind. He'd be able to make the lame walk. He'd be able to preach good news to those who were disenfranchised and poor. And so we have to understand Jesus, as he's doing this, Jesus himself and all his early followers, they're all Jewish. Right? In the early days, Christianity was not a separate faith from Judaism. It was started by a bunch of Jews who believed that Jesus is who their scriptures said was going to come in the Messiah. They believed it was the further progression of their faith, not a separate faith unto itself. And so Jesus is saying, hey, these prophecies that exist, go ahead and verify them. I'm doing them all. I am the Christ. Right? He doesn't say, I am the Christ, just believe. He says, I am the Christ, here's the evidence. Now the question we can have at this point is, well, how do we know that Jesus actually said that? How do we know that the Bible is true and anything that it says, what if these things are all made up? And that's an important question to address. And that's why I'm actually going to do a whole sermon on how do we know the Bible is what it says it is. So that's coming up in two weeks. But here's what we have to understand. Here's what we have to understand about what Jesus is laying out. Christianity is not a code of conduct. Christianity is not a philosophy for life. Christianity is not even a specific theory about God. It's not just that. At the heart of it, Christianity is rooted in the historical person of Jesus Christ and his historical acts, which are either true or false. 
And so what this means is that the Christian faith does not rise or fall with our ability to answer every intellectual and theological question we might have. No, Christianity rises or falls with the truth about what Jesus did or didn't do in history. It's not just theological. Christianity is, is meant to be historical. Our faith rises or falls with what happened with Jesus. Our faith rises or falls with the greatest miracle, the greatest evidence that Jesus has given for who he is, his resurrection from the dead. The Bible writer Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been risen from the dead, if that did not actually happen in history, then our faith is futile and in vain, and we're to be pitied more than anyone else. He puts the whole weight of the Christian faith on one specific historical moment. Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? And so we need to understand our faith is not just blind trust, nor our faith is something that we can go and search out the evidence for. What is your answer for why the tomb of Jesus is empty? What is your answer? If we have questions about our faith, that's the first question that we should always ask. What do we believe? What do we think the evidence suggests about Jesus? And I've preached on the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection many times. I'm not going to go into that whole sermon. But I'll leave you with one thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. He doesn't say just believe that. No, as he do, he cites evidence from hundreds of people who saw Jesus alive. He says, these people all see it. Some of them have died, but most are still alive. Why does he refer to them being alive? Because it's implied that, hey, Corinthian church, who is not present in Jerusalem, if you have questions about whether this really happened, go back to Jerusalem and see the tomb that is empty and hear from all the people who are willing to testify to bear witness to the fact that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. That's what Paul's saying. If you've got questions about this, go verify it with the witnesses. If we have questions about the Christian faith, it starts with, what do we believe about Jesus? And did he really rise from the dead? What do we believe about the people who said Jesus rose from the dead? Are these hundreds of people lying? You know, people lie all the time, so they could be. We have to understand that their witness to this resurrection got them nothing but suffering, hardship, and most of them were killed for that faith because it was illegal to say that Jesus is God. It was illegal to say he rose from the grave. And so they all died. And so the question we have to ask is, why would someone die for something they know to be a lie? There's evidence. There's evidence for the resurrection that we have to consider. And the point of this that I think is really meant to fill us with hope, the idea that we have a faith that can be verifiable, how that should fill us with hope, is because when we're going through our doubts, which you've ever experienced doubt, it can be confusing, it can be overwhelming. I know for me, some of my greatest doubts have been in my experience of my battle with Crohn's disease. I have a chronic illness, if you don't know, called Crohn's disease, a small bowel disease. It's affecting me in multiple ways. I've had more surgeries than I can remember. 
And, and I've had significant moments of doubt through those various flares. One of them came when I was 24 years old and had been in the hospital for a number of days, had lost about 40 pounds, um, was incredibly sick, and was about to have another major reconstructive surgery of my stomach to try to save my life from the infection that was just wrecking havoc in my body. And the doctor came and said, Jeff, we're going to do this surgery. And I, I think it's going to fix the infection. I think you're going to be okay. But I want you to understand, because of all the treatment and testing and all that your body's been through, you, I just want you to prepare you, you might not be able to have children. I've been married for about two years at that point. And so I have to grapple not only with the pain of what I'm going through and the uncertainty of a major surgery and what's going to happen when I come out of that surgery seven hours later is how am I going to be. I have to grapple with the fact that I might not have to be child have children, which is not only sad for me, but now I'm thinking, what does that mean for my wife? Like that's a desire she has that I might not ever be able to give her. I'm hurting for myself and I'm hurting for her. And I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, God, why would you let this happen? I'm having a question, if God is good, why does evil occur? And it's not just an intellectual question, it's a very emotional experience. And what helped me get through that time, and what's helped me so many times as these experiences continue to happen in various ways, was not an answer to how could a good God allow suffering. There's answers. We're actually going to be doing a sermon on that as well. Uh, my good friend Ian McConnell, another pastor in the city, is going to be coming and preaching to us. But how, how can you answer the question, how could a good God allow suffering? There's, there's answers to that specific question. But what helped me in that dark night as I'm contemplating my own hurt and the hurt of my wife, what helped me in that night was not an answer to that intellectual question. It was realizing that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't have an answer to that, but I do know that Jesus is a real historical person who really died on the cross, and I think there is really good reason to believe that he rose from the grave. And so because of who Jesus is, I have no other certainty in my life other than Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ is coming, risen, and Christ is coming again. And that is where all my doubts, I'm resting it all on Jesus Christ and the verifiable fact of who he is. It helps to give us hope when we realize we have a faith that can be verified. And not just verified, but a faith that's also personal. It's verifiable and it's personal. Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He points back to himself. He doesn't just give an answer. He says, hey, I'm telling you something about myself. Listen, when God wants to communicate who he is, he did not give us a message written in the heavens. No, he came as a man. He became personal. He personified himself. He became the God-man, fully God, fully man in Jesus Christ. Jesus is personal. And this is offensive to some. The fact that God could come down as a person. Jesus was offended. Offensive. He recognized he was offensive. Because again, he's talking to a Jewish audience. And he's telling them, hey, listen. You've missed it. Jesus often said, hey, you've heard it written but I say to you, saying, you, you've been hearing this for years, but let me tell you how what you've been hearing for years is not the full truth, is not fully right. 
And that's why people said no one taught like Jesus taught. They're amazed at the depth of the answer that he gave. These scriptures that they read on this level, Jesus would take it down to this level. And people were either amazed and in awe of that and became his followers, or they were enraged and wanted to put him to death. Jesus is, by the nature of who he is, offensive because he calls us to make a choice about what we believe about him personally. Jesus is divisive. He is. And the most offensive thing he ever did was not just what he said. The most offensive thing he ever did was dying on a cross. For a Jewish person, that's incredibly offensive because to be dying on a cross means that you are cursed by God. And so how could Jesus say he's God and then go and become a curse for God? And then for those of us who aren't Jewish, it can be offensive for us as well because here's what the cross says. The cross says that our sins, that honestly we don't think are that big a deal, our wrongdoings that we dismiss and don't think about, they are so serious to God that the only way they can be dealt with is for the holy blood of God to be spilled on our behalf. The cross makes a damning statement about each one of us. Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says, the cross says two things simultaneously. It says that we are more sinful than we could ever think. That's offensive. But it also says we're more loved than we could ever imagine. In order to experience the beauty of the cross, you first have to be offended by it. You have to realize that the cross says you're a sinner. Oh, but when you realize that, taking up that offense, friends, that delivers you to the beauty that there was someone who was cursed by God for you. There was someone who became sin on the cross. Our sins were put on him so that we would not have to be judged for our sins. The cross does say it's sinful, but it, we're sinful, but it also says that we're loved because Jesus died in our place. And so for the Christian, when we say God is love, that's not just a theological statement. That's not just something we read in a book. No, God being love is a historical moment through Jesus Christ who lived the life we could not live, who died on the cross for our sins and who rose from the grave to prove that he's truly God. How do we know God is love? Jesus shows us that God is love. And so Jesus, we, in Jesus, we don't just have verifiable information. We have a personal connection. I want to close by sharing with you a story by a man named Harry Calcord. Harry Calcord was the first person to allow himself to be carried on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. I don't know if anyone here has been to Niagara Falls before, but it is a massive thing. 2,590 feet across. It's a 187 foot drop. And there are 3,190 tons of water going over that fall every second. Because of the massive water and the huge expanse, it can kick up these gusts of wind going as, sometimes as fast as 90 miles per hour. There was a man who was going to walk across a tightrope, and Harry Calcord allowed himself to be carried by him. Why did he do that? Not because he didn't have doubts. Oh, he certainly had doubts. He expressed them very clearly in the press before he went on that journey. He had doubts. Why did he allow himself to be carried? 
One, because he had verifiable evidence. He had seen this tightrope walker, a man named Henry Blondin. He had seen him do this many times before. He had good evidence to believe that this man could make this journey. And not only did he have verifiable evidence, but he was his friend. Harry was actually this tightrope walker's, Harry Blondin, Henry Blondin, he was actually his manager. They'd worked together for 20 years. And so he had verifiable evidence, and he had a personal connection, and because of that, he allowed himself to be carried across this raging waterfall. And so friends, when we have doubts that can be coming over us like a raging waterfall, my encouragement to all of us is to allow Jesus to carry us. Allow Jesus to carry us because we have seen him do it before. We have evidence for who he is. We have verifiable information and we can have a personal relationship with this Jesus Christ. And so when we are in our doubts and we are feeling blown all over by the gusts of wind, when we're terrified by where our doubts might drop us into, when we feel like there is water that could be pushing us away, oh friends, how do we handle doubt? We allow Jesus to hold us. Without Jesus to carry us across that tightrope. Harry Calcord did not try to get across himself. He did not try to wheel himself across the tightrope. No, he allowed himself to be held by the one who always makes the journey. And that's who Jesus is. And so friends, as we have doubt, our hope is not in knowing everything. Our hope is in knowing him. And so be honest. He can handle it. Be humble. He's given us evidence to so who he is. And be hopeful. We can have a personal relationship with Christ. And so my encouragement to you, friend, is if you are a Christian who grapples with doubt, again, we have some specific answers coming in coming weeks, but please know this. Fundamentally, what you need in your doubts is you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of times we're Christians, we dismiss the gospel. Like, okay, yeah, I get that, but my question is this. But friends, if we think that we get that and we just dismiss it, we've just dismissed the very power of God. We've dismissed the core of our faith. And so how can we expect to answer questions about our faith if we are not rooting ourselves in the core of our faith? Don't go beyond the gospel. In your doubts, go deeper into the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, you have questions about Christianity, maybe questions, man, Christians believe so many crazy things. I'm not sure what I do. I'm not sure what this means for my life. Friends, no, it all goes back to Jesus. Christianity is not about learning a right way to live. Christianity is about believing Jesus Christ who said he is the way, the truth, and the life. It all comes back to him. And so in our doubts, that's what we do. We go to Christ. Let's pray.